0: Welcome to the Thrive Podcast from Syngenta, where the latest news, farming tips, and innovations come together to inform and inspire.
1: Last month, we spoke with Chuck Farr about the relentless problem of resistant weeds, especially Palmer amaranth and waterhemp. Controlling these and trying to stay ahead of them can be costly and challenging, but prefix formulations and tank mixtures can help tackle your most problematic weeds. So today, Stanley Culpepper, University of Georgia Cooperative Extension Weed Agronomist, is with me to talk about tank mixtures and how they can be used to a grower's benefit. With a long history in the field, over 20 years, he knows a thing or two about improving tactics for Better weed control. So, thank you so much for being here, Stanley.
2: Oh, it's wonderful to be here with you.
1: Well, first of all, I think it could be good to start with giving just a high level overview of what a premix or a tank mixture is and if they're different in any way.
2: Okay, so from a weed management perspective, a premix is a mixture of two or more herbicide active ingredients formulated together and provided in a single container. This is a little bit different than a tank mixture because the tank mixture is basically the applicator is mixing multiple herbicide modes of action themselves. But from a weed science perspective, as long as we have multiple herbicide modes of action that are effective on our problem pest, it's fine whether it's a premix or a tank mixture, as long as we have that sound uh, diversified program.
1: Which makes sense. Do what you can to have as many AIs as possible to tackle those weeds. How long has tank mixing and premix herbicide use been around?
2: When you look at... The concept of applying multiple herbicide modes of action together to target those troublesome weeds, it's really been quite common for for decades. Really since glyphosate resistant Palmer amaranth was identified back in Georgia in 2003 and 2004, at least in my world, Mm -hmm. uh, we quickly identified the need to be putting multiple herbicide modes of action out simultaneously to go after that pest throughout the season. So uh, the concept is is not new, but fortunately, uh, the idea has received much more attention over the last few years. And we appreciate uh, folks like yourselves and, and others that are bringing attention to it because it's a very important component of a sound management program.
1: Okay, talk to me about why that is and about why using um, diverse modes of action is so important for resistance management.
2: So when we're looking at the current situation with resistance, growers, scientists, uh, industry partners should all be alarmed. Uh, We have very few new herbicide modes of action and I'll remind your viewers, a herbicide mode of action is the way in which a herbicide controls a plant. We have very few new ones, in fact if you look at cotton, I work a lot in cotton, our last new herbicide mode of action was actually in 1984. If you consider how long ago the last new herbicide mode of action was for our cotton growers and you consider how many situations that where resistance is becoming problematic uh, you know that we don't have a lot of new tools and we've got to protect the tools we've got and the ability to use a pre-mix or a tank mixture again it has to be an intelligent mixture but if you have that mixture where it's multiple herbicide modes of action targeting your problematic pests like you mentioned palmer amaranth then we have a better program uh, that we're starting with.
1: So you said intelligently tank mixing. I'm curious what that looks like and what to avoid if you're a grower trying to do this.
2: Oh, I'll give you a perfect example. Let's visit the vegetable world. So I have a vegetable crop where I can actually put Reflex and Valor, which I'm sure many of your listeners are, are aware of. They're very effective residual herbicides on Palmer amaranth, right? But they're the same herbicide mode of action. They're at what we call the PPO herbicides. So if we put those two together, we really don't have multiple herbicide modes of action, right? So we're not protecting or preventing resistance to that chemistry. We would want some other class of chemistry also to be included with those herbicides. That's when I talk about an intelligent tank mixture. So we've gotta think about the pests we wanna manage. We gotta think about the tools that we have. We have to understand which tools or from which herbicide mode of action classification, and then we develop that sound program. We start clean, we implement these sound programs throughout the season, and then hopefully we're we're successful at mitigating weed escapes. One of the biggest advantages now that's not usually talked about is what we call selection pressure. And again, that's tied to resistance. The more we rely on one herbicide or one herbicide mode of action, the more selection pressure we're putting in the environment To find that naturally occurring resistant plant, right? If we only use one herbicide or one herbicide mode of action and there's a naturally occurring resistant plant out there, that plant will survive. And then over time, that plant will uh, increase its progeny and spread and become more problematic, right? So the theory of the integrated diversified tank mixture concept is we want to have dual modes of action that prevent that naturally occurring resistant plant from surviving, right? That's what's getting out the play now. But still, there are a lot of situations where I want a tank mixture because I can improve the overall weed control uh, in my system.
1: So in a recent Syngenta Thrive article, you were quoted saying that it's more important for a chemistry to be new to the targeted weeds than new to the market. And I just wanted to hear you in your perspective, in your own words, kind of explain that to me.
2: OK, so when when you come to the market with a new herbicide mode of action, it really doesn't matter what that date is. The date that matters for a given farmer is when that farmer used that tool for the first time, right? So you may have developed chemistry and commercialized it in 1984, but if I'm not putting it on my family farm until 2021, then that's really the first time that I am going to use that tool to manage pests and you remember I mentioned selection pressure Mm -hmm. right the very first time you use a weed management tool you are selecting natural selection for resistance right So, so that resistant plant is out there somewhere it's naturally occurring we didn't create it it's naturally occurring so if I can get a new herbicide mode of action and I got quotes with new Uh, to my growers in 2021, even if it was developed in 1984, if they have not used it, then essentially it is new for weed management. And it's a starting point uh, that we can develop sound programs uh, to prevent resistance development to that chemistry.
1: Which makes sense. The crop's never seen it before. Technically it's new to that field. So would there be any instance in which you wouldn't recommend a tank mixture aside from if they are the same mode of action?
2: The answer to that is yes. There are a lot of scenarios that we can't put certain products together because we actually reduce the activity of a product. For example, we call it antagonism. If we put product X with product Y, we might get less control out of product X, right? So a lot of research goes into pre-mixes and goes into tank mixtures, and that will determine if we actually have a negative effect. The other thing that's also very important, sometimes in some crops, when we put tank mixtures together, we greatly increase the level of injury that's observed. And I can tell you for a Georgia cotton grower, that is quite problematic. So we have to do a lot of research to determine if the tank mixture increases injury, right? So you you have to understand both the positives and negatives of every tank mixture. They're almost always positives. They're almost always negatives. But as a scientist or as an industry partner, you have to understand all of those before you make that recommendation. This world of herbicides is is complex. It's complex because if you don't get it right, you could severely damage the crop, and you could end up with very little to no weed control. And when you have weeds like Palmer amaranth or water hemp or tropical spiderwort, you don't get an opportunity to catch up. You get one one attempt. And you better do it right if you don't do it right you'll be you'll be spending a lot of money trying to clean up a mess right so we can't afford a mistake and that's why cooperation and communication are so valuable when it comes to weed management in every single
1: crop it blows my mind every single time i have a conversation with somebody in the field or an expert like yourself just the intricacy that goes into managing a crop you know consumers recognize the harvest at the end of the year but they don't actively see the growing and the planting and they don't see all the decisions that are made behind the scenes throughout the season, the tweaking and the weight of all the decisions that the farmers have to make and just the risk behind it.
2: You're absolutely right. It's overwhelming. And that's why, you know, I I truly believe our farmers are the most amazing people walking the earth today, what they have to deal with, what they have to figure out.
1: So just wrapping up, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you just really want to make sure that we touch on?
2: You know, I think the key to to any agricultural uh, communication process that involves weed management, we can't stress enough how important the integrated programs are. We've got to diversify the, the herbicide chemistry, but just as importantly, we have to implement alternative control measures. I love cover crops. Tillage may work in some areas, uh, hand weeding, but that, that sound management program, starting clean, staying clean, throughout the season is absolutely critical. If we don't come together to focus on stewardship when we apply herbicide or we apply fungicide or we apply insecticide, we are going to lose these tools. We have to make sure they go exactly where we want them to go and exactly when we want them to go.
1: Absolutely. That was so well said. Thank you so much for your time today and for just giving us your insight and your knowledge. Like I said, over 20 years in the field, you're a highly regarded voice for this. So just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today.
2: You're so welcome.
1: Kevin Scholl and Sarah Jahant are two Syngenta agronomic service representatives who help growers identify problems in their fields and find solutions that can lead to greater yield and higher quality potential. Deeply rooted in agriculture, Kevin was born and raised in ag and covers crops in northern Illinois, while Sarah covers corn, soybeans, wheat, tobacco, and cotton crops in Kentucky and Tennessee. In their respective regions, tar spot and southern corn rust are two of the most detrimental diseases. In the Midwest, tar spot is a relatively recent disease. Kevin, will you give me a bit of background on tar spot and when it started to really become an issue for growers?
0: Tar spot's been here in the U.S. since about 2015. In 2018, in northern Illinois and southern Wisconsin, we had uh, quite a large br- uh, breakout of this disease, and we got to got to see it firsthand. But uh, tribal Probe did a very nice job of uh, controlling that, controlling the disease at that time. And over the over the years since 2018 to now, uh, it seems like the disease has been around, but hasn't been very prolific. Uh, it's uh, like in 2020, it seemed like it came in fairly late, and and uh, its area of uh, of uh, coverage has grown. And I think in 2021, when we had the right conditions, uh, we saw it uh, break out in a much larger area than what we had anticipated previously.
1: What were those right conditions that were present in 2021 that caused it to flourish?
0: When we think about the disease triangle, we think about the pathogen, the the host, which is uh, corn in this case, and then the environment, which is uh, for tar spot is uh, our Cooler conditions and uh, leaf wetness, which uh, can be caused by rain or dews, fogs in the morning, that type of thing, keeping that leaf wet for a long period of time. And uh, in 2021, we had that over a large area. You know, we may have not had it for the full season, but we definitely had periods uh, in the growing season where we had had those conditions, and that's when uh, tar spot seemed to take hold.
1: So what are some of the characteristics of it that when scouting growers should be on the lookout for?
0: Scouting is going to be a very important part of this disease, uh, being able to look for this disease early in the growing season and uh, being able to continue to scout fields even after uh, after you've made an application. But the disease looks kind of like if you just take a, a a paintbrush with black paint on it and just kind of flick it on a leaf, it just makes... Uh, Kind of the spots on the leaf, and that's so. Uh, if you can't uh, rub it off, uh, more than likely you have tar spot, and then uh, you know it can get to be uh, pretty dense on the leaf, and uh, you know causing the leaf to turn turn black and uh, and uh, and basically kill the leaf if it's uh, left untreated.
1: So, how did tar spot affect the yield potential and the economic potential of the 2021 crops last year?
0: We had you know, good growing conditions uh, th- uh, throughout the, the season this year. And so we had very really high yield potential. And so fields that were not treated for tar spot this year really had probably in the range of 20 to 40, 50 bushel yield loss. It was uh, is pretty devastating in some areas. We were able to, to control that with uh, fungicide applications this year. And I think this year was a little bit different than uh, previous years in that we had the, the environmental conditions that went fairly late into the growing season. And many people were starting to see tar spots show up again and uh, some some fields were treated again and, and we saw some benefit from that also. So I guess the, the main point here is, uh, you know, we normally would be looking at doing fungicide applications at that uh, VT or tassel to, uh, R1 or silk stage. Uh, that's kind of the, the main main timing for other diseases like uh, uh, northern corn leaf blight and gray leaf spot. But uh, with, with tar spot, we need to be looking a little bit earlier, scouting those fields a little bit earlier. And whenever we see the disease in the lower canopy, we need to be starting to think about making an application, whether that's Uh, Earlier than the VTR1, or uh, or at the VTR1 is going to be kind of the timing to start spraying if if you don't see it earlier. And then the other thing is is to uh, continue to scout your fields uh, later in the growing season. Definitely, if if the environmental conditions remain uh, conducive to to tar spot uh, infections, uh, continue to scout fields and uh, maybe make another application later. Uh, you know, two to three weeks after your first application if you still have uh, have symptoms. You know, we've seen uh, uh, symptomologies at, you know, R3, R4 uh, stage of growth. R4 is like a dose stage. Uh, you still have some potential for some yield loss even at that stage. But once you get, uh, you know, 40, 40 days out from uh, flower, uh, generally the 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 potential for yield loss drops off pretty dramatically. So we don't really recommend spraying after that point.
1: Interesting. So then as far as application goes, are there any specific fungicides that you recommend that work really well against Tar Spot?
0: We've got a very deep portfolio of products. Our number one choice uh, would be Miribus Neo at 13.7 fluid ounces per acre. That's going to give us a, you know, a nice knockdown. It's got uh, three different modes of action, In there, I've got a triazole, um, an SDHI, and a strobiliar. And so we've got, uh, uh, you know, the the triazole is going to knock knock the uh, tar spot down that's uh, that's already there. And then you got uh, two different uh, uh, preventative uh, fungicides in in that uh, uh, premix that's going to be able to give us a residual to take us out that two to three weeks and uh, and hopefully keep the the uh, disease at bay. And then we also have a uh, Trivapro, which is uh, another uh, three-way mix, uh, fairly similar to Miribus Neo, and it works uh, really in the same same manner. And then you also have the uh, plant health effects of fungicides, especially with Miribus Neo and Trivapro that uh, are gonna help the corn plant from the standpoint of you know more green later in the growing season to help keep that uh, uh, carbohydrate Factory running to be able to fill that uh, kernel to have more weight. And so you, you've got that going for you. You also have uh, uh, water use efficiency. Uh, so you, you know if you get drier in the growing season, uh, you have uh, have better uh, utilization of water in the in those plants. And so there's other there's definitely other benefits other than disease control
1: mm-hmm. that
0: uh, are benefits of a fungicide application.
1: Awesome. Well, it's good to know that even if they do see this disease, there are products that work well against it. So, Sarah, how does this compare with Southern Rust? I know you guys don't really get Tar Spot much in the South, but what are some of the main diseases that you see in your geography in corn?
3: Um, it's pretty consistent that we see, you know, gray gray leaf spot gets all the press. That would be the most prevalent disease here in my states as well as across the Midwest. Northern Corn Leaf Blight used to be a disease that you saw about two every, two years out of every 10, and now we're seeing it three years out of every five, so that's certainly getting worse, and then southern rust uh, would be the third one, and of course that when it comes in, it can really hammer yield, so those top three diseases are ones that uh, we really want to have a disease management program for every year.
1: Yeah, so homing in a little bit on southern rust, is that something that growers should plan to manage each season, or is that kind of a sporadic disease?
3: You know, Katie, southern rust doesn't happen every year, but you certainly should be prepared for it every year. Now, the other two diseases I've mentioned do happen um, consistently enough that you would wanna manage that. And in our part of the country, um, southern rust happens often enough that you really should go into your season planning for a fungicide program and the product of course we position would be trivapro it's it's basically unequaled as far as its performance on southern rust a lot of growers you know they think well i'll just wait till i see disease before i do anything and the problem with that is that these diseases like gray leaf spot and northern you can have infection before you actually see a lesion So what I try to tell guys to do is is to spray their corn based on crop stage and how good the crop is doing. So if you've got a successful looking corn crop that is really good yield potential, then protecting it with tribal pro during the reproductive stage, which is basically tassel on, would be what I would do. And then whether or not you do get southern rust or not, you're protected from all the diseases on the label. I get worried when a grower says, well, I'll just wait till I see if I need it. And the problem is is then then when they need it, which is typically every year, then it's hard to get a helicopter or get an applicator. A planned program in advance of the corn going in the ground. Um, I think I've been working with fungicides for since 1988. You, you need a fungicide more oftentimes than not. And if you're really managing your crop, which most growers are, they're using a corn fungicide or should be every year.
1: Yeah, and so it sounds like if you're seeing it visibly in your field, you're already behind.
3: Yeah, it's always easier to prevent something, Katie, than it is to correct something. So once a disease pathogen is in a field and that corn plant is trying to metabolize and photosynthesize in the presence of the disease, and then it's taking you a week or 10 days to get organized, to get in there, to control the disease, we don't have the luxury to let that corn plant, let's say suffer for that period of time. So I would rather pick the pl- timing when that plant is doing the most reproductive work of its life, which is basically from tassel emergence through like say milk stage or early dough stage and protect that window with TriboPro from those diseases.
1: So specifically with Southern Corn rust, what are some of the things that they should be looking for and scouting for when it comes to that disease? And then what impact does that specifically have on yield potential?
3: Okay, what's unique to Southern rust and the rust diseases in in general is that they blow up from the South. Most of the Southern rust that affects the Midwest here uh, blows up from Texas and Mexico. And it comes up usually in, in late July and August typically on storm fronts, like when you hear about hurricanes coming up or, or thunderstorms and these spores, the Southern rust spores basically ride in on the wind and the storm fronts. And what they do then is they infect land on the corn leaf. And then when conditions are right, which you need, you know, temperature and moisture, which we have basically year in and year out, uh, then the disease really takes off. And the thing about Southern rust is that you could scout your corn on Monday and not see anything. Or you might just see a couple of pustules, a couple of just little powdery rust color specks on the leaf and think, oh, well, that's not too much. But the degree that that, that, that disease can reproduce is astronomical. So you can go in three to five days to having a very little visual impact to having you know, 30% of the leaf covered. And what that disease does is it infects the leaf surface and penetrates the cells, and those cells then are no longer able to photosynthesize and fill the ear. And it, it can be so thick on the leaves that actually when you scout the field and you come out of the field, you're actually have rust-colored sleeves on your shirt. So it can be very prolific. And anytime you are losing leaf tissue, then that tissue is not filling the ear. and and our corn, you know, grain fill is such a short period of time that we just can't really afford that to lose any amount of that time to grain fill.
1: Yeah. Wow. So this really is not
3: unusual to see a 25, 35 bushel drop on a Southern rust infection. So it can be, and if you multiply that by, you know, I don't know what corn's at right now, but let's just say, you know, 4 to $5. You can see how catastrophic that is to mm-hmm. the grower's return on investment.
1: Right. So a 25 bushel an acre decrease at $4 a bushel is a $100 an acre of loss. And that's just not something that they can afford to have happen to their field or can afford to have ravaged their field, really. And that treatment is one that adds profit potential. And regarding temperature and moisture, going back to that point, this isn't just moisture from rain, this is moisture in the field in general, including
3: dew. Correct, you know, because if you've got as little as say eight to 10 hours of leaf moisture, and that pustule of the rust or the gray leaf spot or the northern corn leaf is on that leaf, then you have a good environment for reproduction, for the disease, I should say. And then as the day sun comes out, those pustules that now have reproduced in the wetness of the leaf overnight, then become airborne and move from leaf to leaf and plant to plant within the field. So I would encourage growers to think about the moisture and the temperature in the field, not so much the environment as they're you know, in their yard and driving down and did it rain? Because we don't need rain for disease, we just need moisture.
1: Great insight, Sarah, thank you so much. Um, diseases like tar spot in southern rust that can devastate a field, make it important for growers to really be in communication with their syngenta representative or trusted advisors. So to learn more about Pro fungicide for these diseases, you can visit notafraidtowork.com or to learn about Mervis neofungicide, you can visit boostyourbushels.com. National Farm Machinery Show is right around the corner, beginning February 16th, and it is free and open to the public.
0: Yes, and if our listeners are attending, Syngenta is an exhibitor at the show, so come swing by
1: the booth and chat with our team. And as in past years, we are again sponsoring the championship tractor pool, which you do not want to miss. Battle of the best, as they call it. Um, intensity and excitement is thick, and trucks and tractors battle it out at the championship tractor pool. I'm slightly envious that I will not be there. This invitation-only event has drivers competing in five performances, and they can bring home their share of more than $200,000 in prize money. Are you kidding me? I want to be there. I want That's awesome.
0: Seriously, me too.
1: I mean, how fun would that be? Um, And attendees can also visit the Syngenta booth for
0: some uh, in-booth giveaways. So our team looks forward to seeing you guys there.
1: Absolutely. Tune in next month for more stories and insights from the field.
0: Thank you for listening to The Thrive Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to receive the latest updates in your favorite podcast listening platform. Always read and follow legal instructions. and then our ability
2: to continue to use these products economically uh, in the future. If if we don't come together to focus on stewardship,